God has shown strength with God's arm. God has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. God has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Micah Belong, the wise old llama envy, joined today by my wonderful guests. Derek, will you tell the wonderful folks at home a little bit about yourself? My name is Derek White. Uh, you can find me on all social medias as the Geek Preacher or Geek Preacher. And uh, what I do is I work with emergent storytelling using tabletop role-playing games where I teach clergy how to use those games to tell better stories. And I also use those games uh, to teach virtue ethics. And I'm wow. a chaplain for the tabletop gaming community. Uh, most specifically, I'm the chaplain for the GaryCon gaming convention, and I lead worship services, ecumenical worship services at various other gaming conventions around the country. Awesome. Davi, would you mind telling the folks about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Davi Weasley. I use they, them pronouns. I'm one of the pastors at First Congregational Church of Bellingham um, up here in Northwest Washington State. Um, I'm finishing a cold, so I have a like more gravelly and cool voice than I usually do. So what an exciting time to record a podcast. Um, let's see. Uh, I, I think that's most things about me. I'm, I'm an American Baptist pastor. I'm serving a UCC church, and uh, I uh, am jealous of Derek's job a little bit. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like fun to me. And uh, um, but yeah, um, I live up here with my partner, who's a pastor of a um, queer activist Mennonite church plant, and um, my kiddo, who is a four-year-old and passionate student of physics and trains and monsters. <laughs> I love that. Describing toddlers as students of physics, that is the rebrand that they need, really. <laughs> no, they're not falling. They're students of physics. That's fantastic. <laughs> With that said, we will go ahead and begin to read uh, Genesis 1. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light, and so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. And it happened in that way. God named the dome sky. There was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky come together into one place so that the dry land can appear. And that's what happened. God named the dry land earth and God named the gathered waters seas. God saw how good it was. God said, let the earth grow plant life. Plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind throughout the earth. And that's what happened. The earth produced plant life, plants yielding seeds, each according to its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind. 
God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will mark events, sacred seasons, days, and years. They will be the lights in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth. And that's what happened. God made the stars and two great lights, the larger light to rule over the day and the smaller light to rule over the night. God put them in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with living things and let birds fly above the earth up in the dome of the sky. God created the great sea animals and all the tiny living things that swarm in the waters, each according to its kind, and all the winged birds, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. Then God blessed them. Be fertile and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, and every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us, so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food. To all wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything God had made. It was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The heavens and the earth and all who lived in them were completed. On the sixth day, God completed all the work that God had done. And on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that God had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So, that story has a lot going on within it. All sorts of, of different movements that are happening within it. And, and there's just so much there. It is the foundation myth of most of Western civilization. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. First, I want to talk about this really interesting movement in verse 27. This point where God creates humanity. Uh, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Davi, tell me a little bit more about what that verse means to you. Yeah, I love, one of the things I love about this story, and, and I think there's a lot to love and a few things to be really troubled by, certainly, as, as is so often the case with any kind of Bible study, um, is, is this moment when humanity is created specifically in God's image and specifically with the diversity of genders. We don't know what that looks like. Uh, one of the power of stories like this one in scripture and in fairy tales, in, in any kind of um, tradition where you get the like the the universality by having really sparse details, is um, 
you know, does that mean God created one human who was male and female? Does that mean God created a million humans, some of whom were male and some of whom were female and some of whom were um, a blend of those? The text doesn't tell us and maybe doesn't care. Um, But there's something about uh, within the diversity of the genders that are listed here and others that show up elsewhere in scripture um, and elsewhere in humanity, that's what it means to be the image of God. So um, I, I guess for one, it certainly like disrupts some hierarchical or patriarchal models where like, here's the men and they're like created first. And there's some of that in the, the next creation story, um, maybe. Um, <laughs> um and, and I think I just like that, like, from the beginning in this story, humans have diversity of gender identity, and that is reflective of who God is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, throughout the story, we see that God creates the extremes of things, right? That God creates the sky and the oceans. But does that mean that God didn't create the clouds in between or the air, the, the water in the atmosphere and all those other things? God creates the day and the night. Does that mean God didn't create the dusk or the dawn? No, obviously those things are there present as well. So just because God created them male and female doesn't mean that God didn't create all the other genders in between as well, right? <laughs> Um, so I, I absolutely love that. I don't know. Like, it's interesting to think about maleness and femaleness as poles. Um, I think that's a um, very common and kind of reasonable way to think about that. Um, I, I don't know that I would necessarily. Um, and in the same way that like, you know, the land between the mountain and the ocean seems like some combination of the mountain and the ocean until you get close to it. Um, mm. And then it becomes kind of its own thing. Um, the extremes and also the um, just the, the variety and the variedness of creature life and plant life and 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 kind of geographic life in this are kind of all um, all in the same song or all in the same poem or whatever this text is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and thank you for that because I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> this is why I need a diversity of voices, right? To to push back on the ways that I'm seeing these things. That gender isn't just those two poles that we're separating from, but is in fact this this vast array um, there within it. That's awesome. First off, Walter Wink is an incredible theologian for all leftists. And if you consider yourself anywhere uh, left of center, you should be reading Walter Wink and his analysis of power. Um, Walter Wink reads into this passage uh, the myth of redemptive violence. And Derek, please explain that to us, and then talk about how Wink brings that into this passage. Well, as someone who works with emergent stories, one of the key things to realize is that emergent stories are often a counter-narrative to the stories that people in power tell, people that are at the top of the food chain. Now, Genesis and most of the Pentateuch was composed while the Hebrew people were under Babylonian captivity. And the Babylonians had a creation story, and their creation story was one of violence. Uh, It was the belief that violence saves. That's what that whole myth is about, is that might makes right. It just enshrines that belief that war brings peace. And it's one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world. And we even see it today. Uh, I do, as you heard at the beginning of this, I do a lot of work with the geek community. 
And I love comic books too. So I'm not just somebody that plays Dungeons and Dragons games like that. I love comic books. And one of the things that always frustrated me about Batman is that Batman never truly defeated the Joker. The Batman would throw the Joker in Arkham Asylum after this horrendous battle, and the Joker would escape a few issues or a few episodes later, and the story went on and on again. And that's what the Babylonian story was. You had the great gods up there, the all-powerful Apsu and the powerful Tiamat, the great dragon, who were conspiring to kill the younger gods. And they went, and the younger gods found out about this conspiracy, and they rose up against them, Marduk leading the fight. And what Marduk does to create the world is Marduk slays Tiamat. And so the world comes into being out of that violence. And then even after that violence, and the world is created and the elder gods are defeated, Marduk decides, hey, you know what? We need some folks to wait the tables for us because, you know, we're these all-powerful deities now. So let's get somebody to wait the tables for us. So what Marduk does is he takes one of the captured elder gods, slays that elder god, and creates humanity out of the blood of this other slain elder god. So human beings in the Babylonian story have something of the divine with them, but what is divine with them is created out of violence and out of corruption and out of warfare. And so all of this fighting, it's a very male thing, very male-centric. Women are destroyed. Tiamat, the female god, was destroyed. And so all this violence is what humanity is created out of, and humanity is meant to be the slaves of the gods. Now, what does that mean theologically for humanity? That means you have kings up here ruling because that's their divine right. They're put in place by the divine. And the peasants, the working class, the people who are down in the ditches making all of this stuff are met by divine purpose to be the slaves to the kings. Now, we don't have kings in most of the Western world, or if they do, they have very little power. Now we just call them CEOs. <laughs> and so that's what the Hebrew people were writing about. They were writing a counter narrative that says, no, the God who creates, creates out of peace. The God who creates uh, out of love, everything is created out of love and out of compassion. There is no violence in this creation story. And in fact, when we read further in Genesis, the origin of violence and the origin of sin is not the divine. It is humanity. So this passage is so powerful to me because it tells us that the divine is one of love, one that continues to create, one that continues to bring life, whereas it's the human being that makes and causes the violence. It's the human being that spreads these stories of redemptive violence. And we want to see that cycle of violence continue because it allows the people in power to stay on top and in control. I I absolutely love that interpretation. And 
part of the reason that I love it is that I'm going to disagree with it, right? <laughs> On this podcast, you're going to hear a lot of different interpretations. Yeah. Um, and the Walter Wink interpretation is so powerful because it does point out this hierarchy is perpetuated by violence. It's perpetuated by a monopoly on violence that's given to governments, that's given to the hierarchies of religion and whatnot. Um, and here, it is an oppressed people who are telling this story. Um, but I really love John mm -hmm. Collins' interpretation. He takes the same set of data and he says, well, actually, in fact, what's happening here is that this God is the God who's defeating all of those other gods. Instead of, uh, instead of, uh, Marduk being the one who comes up and defeats these gods, that this God specifically is the God of Israel who does this on behalf of humanity ahead of them. And so when God separates the domes of the waters, that is the goddess Tiamat that God is defeating this, this chaos monster that God is defeating by splitting in two and then making up a huge portion of humans with that water. Now, I should cushion that in pointing out the fact that in the story of Noah, this warrior god that does the creating puts their bow up in the sky as a sign that they will never again destroy the earth, right? So it is a god who begins with overthrowing the tyrants, overthrowing the evil system, overthrowing the hierarchy that exists, and then at the end, when they have redone creation, gives up that power of violence. But I love this interpretation that, that we can both see in here the fact that violence is this terrible evil that perpetuates oppression and also that liberation sometimes needs to come through violence. Yeah, and, and, and because I'm in the nonviolent sphere, which is really weird since I play a lot of violent games. But uh, see, I look at the later depictions of God as a warrior God as something that the priestly writers were putting together because now a kingdom is being established. And so we need our God to look like a warrior God, which comes on a little bit later in Genesis when the violence begins to flood the earth. And that's where process theology plays a role in it, is that it is a God in process, just as we as human beings are in process. So God starts off with the nonviolence, then the people need this God to rise up and fight against these violent tendencies. And through humanity's desire for a warrior God, God changes the process. Mm -hmm. And then God processes and grows. So I, I don't have a static theology where God was just this way and then changed. God changed. You know, that whole passage, I am the Lord and I change not, is just so out of context. <laughs> Because we see God processing what's going on and God changing and moving and growing into, since I come from a Christian context, into the one who becomes the Prince of Peace, where we lay down the sword and the shield down by the riverside and begin to study war no more. Derek, so, why didn't you explain process theology to me while I was in seminary? Why am I only figuring this out now on a podcast years later? Do you later? think seminary <laughs> taught me? Do you think seminary taught me process theology? I went to seminary in the South. Come on. You know, it doesn't. Uh, you know, uh, process theology, open theism, these are all beautiful ways to approach the scripture. Because it sees a God, and this goes back to what Davi was saying about gender. This is a God who is changing, who is fluid, and we ignore those images. And that, that's one of the problems with this text is the divine feminine 
is is if you go with that where the dome is split and that's Tiamat, then you have God Adonai over here slaying a divine feminine being, and it becomes disempowering mm. to women. Whereas you have the story of male and female in this first Genesis text. Now, the second Genesis text tends to subvert that and put the female in a lower position. But then you have, uh, which is problematic and something we need to wrestle with. Davi? Yeah, so um, uh, this is a rich conversation. And there are like six things that Derek said that I would love to like have a beer sometime and, and talk about more, but, but for the sake of this passage, um, I, I love those questions about which other kind of primordial stories do we want to hold alongside this one? Yeah. And, and, and how ought we to kind of wrestle with those? And I, I love the question about science as well to say like, how does this fit alongside my scientific worldview? I'm not a scientist by training, but I, I'm deeply grateful for the gifts of science. Well, for some of the gifts of science in my <laughs> community and in my world. And uh, my kid is a science kid. So um, uh, I guess just to speak to those beginning verses, just because um, I should name that like one of the things I most often name when I talk about feminine images of the divine in scripture is, is that moment. Uh, the spirit of God hovered over the waters. So the the, the Hebrew where there is something like Ruach, my, I don't have good Hebrew, um, yes. but that's a feminine noun, right? And so yes. like yes. from the very beginning of the first story Thank in the Jewish you. and Christian scriptures, like God is at least somewhat or maybe very uh, feminine or feminine. Yes. And so, um, so and, and then to me that also like, rate, I, I want to trouble sto- tellings of this story that rely on um violence in part because uh i also come from a pacifist tradition and in part because there's a binary set up there that i'm not sure is in this story like there's certainly separation and so there's there's ways to read that in and like like how i think the question of how much hierarchy is in the story like it you know Derek's point about like different um biblical sources is an interesting one and for me it's more important um or, or it's important alongside that in the way i tend to read it is like what does it mean for my own context and what am I learning about my own role in creation? And so like at that bit at the end of this passage, like, do I rule over creation as a human? Like that doesn't sound right. That sounds terrible. That sounds like one of the many things in scripture that has fueled just like nightmarish destruction of this beloved creation or am I called to some kind of stewardship or responsibility or caretaking? Yeah. Um, which is another kind of like, oh shit moment for me. Um, <laughs> but is one that I think invites me to much more faithful action. Davi, Davi, I like what you said there about the water, the spirit hovering over the water, because that is a divine image of birth, because we are all born from the water. We're all born from that amniotic fluid. And so when you take this creation story and you look at the water, out of which all is created by by the spirit, we are all born from some primordial amniotic fluid, which is a, exactly, you get a fluidity of gender identity in there. And you get a fluidity of the creation process where all genders are a part of that creation. 
Uh, something I love to do in my games is to throw three genders in there, you know, <laughs> just needed for birth, you know. So because to birth someone or something, you need all of creation at work. Seven seven is the minimum at my table, Dick. <laughs> um, and, and on that point, like the waters, um, I, I've heard tellings of this story. I've heard preachings of this story where uh, chaos is kind of the enemy. Um, and it's, again, this like, oh, like God comes in and establishes order. And it's this very like, um, you know, it reminds me of Derek's telling of the New Malish, the, the Babylonian creation story, mm-hmm. where it's like uh, order is this like masculinist force that like mm-hmm. triumphs over chaos um, for um, for the sake of the world. Hashtag Tiamat was wronged. Yeah, so, Tiamat is wrong. But in this story, there's there's like it's a more complicated relationship between so-called order and chaos. It's chaos is is part of the the life-giving um material that that all this stuff comes out of anyway no yeah. no that i i am with you davi and i have had very few people say this so you're you're my new best friend uh, <laughs> because i i don't say creation ex nihilo i don't believe in creation out of nothing it's creation out of chaos and if you've ever met a musician or a painter or a dungeon master Sure. Or anything like that. Anyone who creates authors, all creation starts in chaos. And it is the chaos of the water, too, because water is chaotic. And the Hebrews saw it, were afraid of water because they were not really a seafaring people. So water is chaotic. But it is from water we get life. And this goes back to the original evolution thought. You know, we all crawled out of the ocean, right? We all evolve from something in the ocean. So water is, is is also chaos. And we create out of pure chaos. And we bring order out of chaos. But when we need to create something else, we have to dip back in to the chaos to create again. Create chaos is just the raw material of the universe. I, I, I think that's I think that's really beautiful. But I, I do want to say um just because it kind of relates to this this theme of hierarchy, um, one of the things that I try to be careful of in my own work with scripture is um, what am I imagining about the worldview of people who lived before I did? Um, in some cases, like many centuries before I did. Um, I think that's especially true. Uh, I think that should be especially true for me as a Christian when I'm reading the Hebrew Bible. Because this is the like lived and active text of my uh, Jewish siblings. And um, when I forget that, that's uh, one of the ways I perpetuate white supremacy and and, uh, and, uh, and anti-Semitism and, and so many other problematic stuff that God hates um, <laughs> to use shorthand. And and so like just just to give a little like I think this is less about uh modern Jewish tellings of this and more about how I imagine kind of ancient peoples using this story. And like my assumption, like, oh, like this is, um, I mean, I think there are lovely ways of sharing this scripture in the context of more scientific worldviews, but what are the gifts of non-scientific creation worldviews for folk like me? I'm a white person. I, you know, I was Western educated. Um, I'm, I've been trained to like use the tools of science to understand everything. And sometimes that can be really life-giving. And sometimes that can perpetuate hierarchical 
um, imperialistic modes. And so a story about creation, like it can be a, a, it can be an experience of awe. I got to go back to Chicago this summer and visit the field museum and see all these like cool, like critters and exhibits and all this stuff. And to like be quiet and hear this story about how the world was created that puts me in a position of um, wonder, hopefully, or awe, or um, um, getting outside my own sense of like having a grasp on things. So like, maybe it's true that like ancient Hebrews were afraid of water, but like, certainly like I'm sometimes afraid of water and should be because like water right. can mess you up. And so like, how do I want to hold my relationship to chaos in my life? And what chaos do I want to bring to the structures around me? Speaking of the call of this podcast. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to point, I wanted to go back to, um, Ruach, because it is it is so connected to so many of the other things that are going on through Genesis. It is the word that that God breathes into humanity is that same word, Ruach. And so it is very much so a birthing word. It is very much so a life-giving word. It is God as our mother creating us in this way. And and the Midrash that talks about uh, creation being uh, in God's womb is so beautiful, <laughs> that all of reality is taking place in God's womb, and God is in the process of giving birth to us. Um, it's just an absolutely gorgeous picture that is overwhelming, and <laughs> and also helps us to think that um, this world as it is, is not necessarily going to be the same as as what we expect after the birth. Going back to my my point about the Midrash, Part of that existing within God's womb, another uh, really interesting midrash is the idea that there is no further day after um, after God has finished creating, right? There are these six days, these seven days, and then we don't know how much, how long each of these days was supposed to last, right? Um, there isn't a clear distinction. The yom here, the Hebrew word, is not a 24-hour period, but is instead beyond this particular limitation. And so what is that seventh day? According to this misdraft, we are living in that seventh day. And, and because the Sabbath is created for us, that moment of rest, that beginning the, the Hebrew day with the evening, the first thing you're doing, being resting rather than producing something, mm -hmm. allows humanity to be oriented around rest, not around production. And ultimately, isn't that the point of leftism and space communism, right? It's to get to the point where we are able to rest primarily, that we were able to create and make all of these beautiful things just like God was doing, call them good, and then rest, and not need to constantly wow. produce to be able to sustain life, but instead to allow life to grow and exist and be beautiful alongside our own rest. I mean, rest is, is essential, and I think you're spot on there in saying that uh, everything is about consumption. And in the ancient world, as well as the modern world, you have those who are in charge of production and in charge of power who want human beings that are under them to always be producing something for them. And so this is a radical text then, as, a, as radical as it is now. I mean, there are so many stories in the Hebrew Scriptures about the people having to say, we're not going to do anything on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is that time of rest, that time of reflection for us. It's not even a time of great religious activity or religious work. 
It's just the time for your body to heal itself. And our culture, as well as the ancient culture, doesn't like that because you don't want the people you've oppressed to have time to meditate upon their <laughs> oppression. Because if they do, guess what's going to happen? <laughs> they're going to step up and they're going to overthrow those in power. Uh, Davi was talking about, uh, you know, being educated uh, in the Western world. Well, my initial education was growing up as a poor white boy in uh, the South. Uh, and so what I tell people I do sometimes is redneck geek theology. Because it, it it's always those in power who are trying to keep the peasant class down. Mm -hmm. And they want the peasant classes to fight amongst each other. They want the poor people to fight with each other left and right so that they don't have time to think about how they're being jacked over by those in control. And the system of production is so much... So that, you know, we're, we're creating far more than we could ever use. <laughs> yeah. you know, and I think here in this story, particularly when God creates humanity, this verse, uh, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. That that phrase, master it, has so much become a, the earth is the slave and we are to be the masters of it. Well, if we are the masters of the earth, then who is our master? Because once you set up a system of hierarchy, there's always somebody on top. There's always someone above you who is yes. going to oppress you and keep you down and all of these things. Even if you look at Jeff Bezos, right? The richest person in the world has far more money than he ever needs, can waste all of this money and not even see a, a, a slightest reduction in his life. He is still the slave to the shareholders who demand more and more from him, right? So we've set up these hierarchies that continue to hurt all of us, even the people who are supposed to be above all of them. And so leftism is not just for the working class, although it is primarily for the working class, right? <laughs> but leftism ultimately is a revolution that will help all people and help all people engage in the image of God in whom they are created. Now, the last point that I really want to talk about is, is a challenge to some of this reading. A lot of the time, Christians in particular read this story and read it as God doing everything perfectly. Now, the idea of perfect is not what's here. <laughs> the idea of good and goodness is here. The idea of goodness is different from the idea of perfect, right? God isn't saying, I have created these things exactly as I want them to be and nothing will ever change, right? If we're looking at this from our scientific perspective, we can imagine that God creates these things and allows them to evolve, to change, to engage in survival of the fittest. God doesn't create them perfect. God creates them good. And when God sees humanity, God calls us supremely good because we're made in God's image. <clears throat> Something we forget by the time of the fall, but we are made supremely good in this first instance. The last midrash I wanted to talk about is this is this reference in uh, the story of light or the, the story of creating the sun and the moon because it says uh, in 14 let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night they will mark events sacred seasons days and years that that passage right there has a huge madrash that's written on it that really touches on a key difference between christianity and judaism that i think is as leftists and especially as christians trying to learn this passage anew 
we need to see this interpretation like Davi was talking about, not just looking at it from our perspective in the West, but also looking at it from a, from a West uh, and Eastern perspective. This Madrash states that when God originally created the sun and the moon, God created them equal, the same size in the sky, one to rule over the day and one to rule over the night. But when God had created humanity, God realized that those two things being the same size meant that humanity never got to sleep because the moon was keeping up all night, and so no one was able to rest. And so God had to make the moon smaller and weaker compared to the sun so that humanity could be accommodated, so that so that life could be able to cycle through its ways. And the moon was angry at God, and the moon accuses God of sinning against her. This is a this is an idea that is radical for Christianity because you know under a Christian framework for under a static vision of God God can't sin because suddenly that changes what we understand as a good God but here in this story God can sin against someone God can do wrong by someone if we believe that God can do something wrong against someone we also recognize that God has the power to make it right again and that is what we cling to as leftists. And so God makes it up to the moon by making the religious calendar of the people of God based on the lunar cycle rather than the solar cycle. That the moon is what is honored, that the moon is what determines uh, all of these cycles within Jewish life rather than the sun, because God is making it up to the moon. And so I think as we think about these things, as we look at the world around us, that our vision for what the world should look like, I think, is what God is going to do when God makes it up to us. That the world that has been allowed to exist, that none of us are responsible for making, (laughs) is something that God is going to make right. And that's the hope that I hold on to. I've always wrestled with the idea that God made mistakes and that God has sinned. But there is textual evidence for that. And again, that's where process theology comes into play, is we have a God in process, a God who, through the act of creating humanity, begins to grow and to learn. And that's one of the reasons I maintain my Christian faith, is because this same God comes in to fully experience humanity in the incarnation. And it's all about this God growing and learning to understand what it means to be mortal, what it means to be human, what it means to experience human joy, human love, and human compassion. While those things were initially birthed from God, God still doesn't experience that until God becomes incarnate. And it's in that incarnation that God understands everything we're going through and the mess of what all this process and growth is about. Well, Derek, Davi, y'all give me a lot to think about. I'm going to have to re-examine my position on process theology. Um, (laughs) But I'd love to combine it with open theism, because (laughs) there is process theology, but it doesn't always mesh well if you don't look at open theism with it. So it's a God in process, but also a God who's growing. And that's why our theology grows and changes as it does as well. I mean, I just think that is such a beautiful image of the divine 
you know, uh, there's a quote I use a lot. Uh, uh, Niebuhr, Niebuhr said this, Reinhold Niebuhr, I believe it was, is the opposite of doubt is not faith. The opposite of doubt is certainty. And this is something that God is in the process of doing. The uh, uh, God is in the process of growing in God's own faith in humanity. But it goes uh, back to my original point about redemptive violence is this is why we must try and destroy these cycles of redemptive violence. Because as long as humanity holds on to the violence in our heart and a violent form of revolution, as long as we continue to do that, then, in a sense, God's process is still going to be caught up in the violence of God's own creation. And it's only until we, we as human beings, God unstrung the bow, but human beings have to learn to put down the bow as well. Human beings have got to learn to put down the AK-47. And it's only when humanity moves into that place of peace that we can find hope. Uh, unfortunately, because we are still apes in one sense, we have that adrenaline that pumps through us that drives us to these acts of violence. And I think that is the next step uh, in humanity's growth and development is to begin to truly adopt these methods of peace and harmony uh, that our creator wanted us to have in that garden so next week we're going to talk about a directly contradictory story of creation uh, that butts up against this one and tells a different story and tells us different things about who we are as human beings and who god is and what god is doing in the world so i hope that you'll join me there Derek, Davi, it has been wonderful having y'all. I will definitely have to have y'all back uh, in the future. And thank you, listener, for joining us for our first podcast here at The Word in Black and Red. We so appreciate you listening to us. We hope that you continue in the future. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you for listening and be blessed. Go in the peace of God to create the world we are co-creating with God. Shalom. Shalom.